Okay, now back to Romans. Let's get to going here. You know, guys, um, these verses that we're going to look at tonight, um, I, I don't think are going to necessarily excite you. Um, and, and I'm not sure that exciting you is, is the proper goal. Um, but, you know, I wonder sometimes if when you're reading your Bible and you come to Romans 15 and, you, you know, you're reading, okay, well, I understand a little bit of that. And then all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul just dumps three, four quotes from the Old Testament on you. And you're thinking, <clears throat> what is that all about? And then you're discouraged because, you know, you read the Bible and you want to understand it. And you can't, I don't know why that's there. It doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> At least I think I can clear that up for you tonight. Again, I don't know that the content will excite you, but it may excite you to think, I see the logic and the, and the motive behind the Apostle Paul. That, that's fun for me, and I, I hope it'll be fun for you. But before we get to that, when we, when we quit two weeks ago, I, I said there was a word that I wanted just to spend just a couple of minutes on. Um, it's the word mercy. It's, it's found in verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And, you know, I, I, that's a word that I think you know and understand, uh, I, I, maybe, but I, I just thought I would spend three minutes clarifying what mercy is, because how does um, what, what is mercy, and how does it differ from grace? What's the difference between mercy and grace? How do you how do those two stack up? How do they compare? Well, guys, um, grace deals with man in their sin. Mercy deals with men in their misery. Um, mercy is a sense of pity coupled to a desire to somehow relieve that, that, that situation that's bad. That's why we talk about mercy ministries, because they see man in his misery and they move to relieve it. Grace deals with people in their sin, while mercy looks on the miserable consequences of that sin and then moves to alleviate it. Mercy is, is kind of grace in action. It's kind of pity in plus action. If you, if you want the, the best illustration that I could think of, um, it, of course, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. That, that is, a, that is an, a, an illustration, or mercy, illustrated. But, but listen to this. This is, um, this is out of Deuteronomy 4. Uh, it, it says, when, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, describing a, a terrible situation that comes upon Israel, uh, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. Do you see the context in which mercy is mentioned? It is mentioned in the context of God seeing his people in this, this time of uh, tribulation and all these things that have come upon you in the latter days. And God is moved. He is moved to alleviate that misery. That's mercy. As opposed to grace, which is dealing with, with, with men and their sin. Um, one of the things that I have heard on a, I don't know, I've been in the ministry 40 years now, but um, on a couple of three occasions, I, I would say that, um, you know, Gracie Band does some things well, and we don't do everything well, but one of the things we don't do well is that we don't exercise church discipline. And we've had many discussions about it, but we just don't do it. Uh, but, but in the context of church discipline, um, 
people say, I can't believe that that church did that. Um, where, where is their mercy? They don't have any mercy. Well, I, I say that to simply say this. There are limits to mercy, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm reading you from Deuteronomy 13. And, and God is speaking and he says, You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him. Now, the context of that statement is a man who is in Israel who is trying to lead other Israelites into idolatry. And God says, I want you to take him outside and I want you to stone him. And I don't want you, and you shall not uh, yield to him or listen to him. Your eyes shall not pity him. All I'm trying to point out is that mercy has limits. Uh, it is, it is, it is pity moving to relieve the misery. But, ladies and gentlemen, some things that we may call mercy really aren't. Because in this instance, I'm, I'm just simply pointing out, God says, don't you dare show mercy to those who are encouraging idolatry. Now, I just wanted to draw your attention to that word. It's a wonderful biblical word, and whatever you think about that word, make sure that you understand that God calls himself merciful. So however you understand it, you've got to understand in the sense that that's what God is like. He, is, he sees men in their misery, and he moves to relieve that. That's what mercy is. Now, that said, we come to these, these four Old Testament uh, quotes that start really in the, the last half of, of verse 9 when Paul says, as it is written, and then he quotes his four Old Testament tests, uh, texts there. Gang, one of the, one of the uh, consistent and striking features of the, of the methodology of the Apostle Paul is that this is, this is how he operates, and if you see it throughout the book of Romans, is that he will, he will develop an argument he will, he, will, he will make assertions, he will teach a truth, he will teach a doctrine. And then from there, he moves on to support it by, by using quotations from the Old Testament. Now, why does he do that? Well, we're never told why he does that. But it seems that Paul was always conscious of a Jewish audience, or at least a, a, a part of his audience being Jewish. And so to convince them that he was teaching nothing new... He would, he, would, he would teach something, and then he would appeal to the Old Testament in support of what he had just taught. So that at least the, those who were um, members of the audience who were Jewish would, would, would see what he uh, was teaching was nothing new. Um, he's got, he's got a, the quotes are from Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, and, and Isaiah 11. But guys... Um, um, all of this <clears throat> that you see in these are really somewhat parenthetical. Really from verses, from verse 8 all the way through the end of verse 12, they're parenthetical in this sense. Actually, um, you get a statement in verse 7, uh, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Then from 8 to 12, they're somewhat parenthetical, because he is using this parenthesis to point to Jesus Christ as the model of what he wants to see happening among Christians. Okay? 
Now, so that's what's going on here, guys. Um, I've told you his methodology is to teach something and then to point to the Old Testament to support it. Um, but the major point of this section that we've been dealing with, and I hope you've heard at least this much, the major point is he is advocating and encouraging Christians to accept other Christians, whether they be strong or weak or Jewish or Gentile or whether they drink wine or don't drink wine. He, he wants Christians to accept one another. But on, in, that's the major point of this section. But that's not what he's supporting with these Old Testament verses. The point that he is supporting by these four Old Testament quotes have to do with what he has said in verse, really verses 8 and 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. It's that point that he is establishing through the usage of four Old Testament quotes. Because, guys, there is something, and I've mentioned this before, there is something so tremendously radical about what he said in verses 8 and 9. It has to do with the inclusion of Gentiles. I've said that to you a couple of weeks ago. This whole idea that Gentile, that he's, he's pleading with Christians to like each other. And then he, he mentions this thing about Gentiles now coming into the same uh, family with Jews. And that was just a whole lot for a Jew to stomach. So to establish that, what he does is that he gives you four Old Testament quotes, all mentioning the inclusion of Gentiles. And that, ladies and gentlemen, for Paul was a huge thing. Um, and, and we see how huge it is in the number of times that he had to present it and he had to argue for it. That Jews were not, I mean, that Gentiles were not to be excluded by Jews. He mentions it in a whole chapter in Romans chapter 11, which we've, we've discussed before. But um, you don't have to turn to this, but there's a sense in which that point, that Gentiles are to be included, was the, was the thing that Paul saw as the summation of his whole ministry. He says in Ephesians 3, just listen to this. <clears throat> um, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, how the mystery has made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery uh, to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles. This mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs. Paul saw his whole apostolic ministry as, as designed to help get over this thing that the Messiah was simply for Jews. That's what he's teaching here, ladies and gentlemen, by these four Old Testament quotes. We'll look at them in just a minute. But, but his, his motive is... 
is to try and, and underscore once again that Gentiles have a part in this Messiah, which for a Jewish audience was repugnant. Now, notice in the, in the, the four quotes, beginning in verse 9, there is somewhat of a, of a progression in the, in, the, in the quotes. He starts by saying, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. You see the among the Gentiles. Verse 10, uh, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. We've gone from among the Gentiles to with his people to verse 11 that says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. You Gentiles are on your own. That is, um, uh, you are to do it yourself. And then in verse 12, he says that the, that the Messiah is, is the Messiah of Gentiles too. It's kind of a progression. All right, look at the first one. It's from Psalm 1849. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. That is something that is said by the theocratic king of Israel. David says that. And he speaks about a time when God is going to be praised among the Gentiles. Now, again, again, do you understand? He's establishing this point that he made in verses 8 and 9. He's using Old Testament verses to say, this has always been something that was to be a part of God's redemptive purposes. That there was going to be a time when I, that, that, that um, God would be praised among the Gentiles. From there, he moves to verse 9 and he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That is, Gentiles standing side by side with his people. Rejoicing in Yahweh. That is, Jews and, and, and Gentiles intermingled there in verse, um, in verse 9, or in verse 10. That, that they, are, they are together. And by the way, um, uh, verse 10 is a quote from Deuteronomy. So you've got David speaking in, in verse 9. You've got Moses speaking in verse 10. Two great heroes in Judaism. Um, and Moses is calling upon Gentiles to join with all of God's people in, in, um, in extolling Yahweh. Guys, for Judaism to even touch a Gentile rendered you unclean. And what you're hearing from David and Moses is that they are to be intermingled along with God's people in this celebration of worship of Yahweh. Just, just, it wouldn't... Guys, do you remember the story in, in Acts chapter 10? I bet you do. Um, do you remember uh, Peter is, um, he's up on the house, he's up on a rooftop, and he has this vision. And this sheet is lowered, um, you know, from heaven, and it's got all these unclean animals on there. And in this vision, the Lord says, uh, Peter, arise and eat. And Peter says, oh, not me. I mean, uh, I'm never going to touch anything unclean. I'm not going to eat anything unclean. Uh, and then it happens three or four times. And, 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 um, and then finally, Peter wakes up. And, um, and do you remember, guys, what the point was? The point was nothing to do with dietary laws. No, now you can eat pork, Peter. That wasn't the issue. And by the way, if you if you'd like to me to prove that, um, the, there in the the other um, the last portion of Acts chapter ten, what does Peter do? Um, he goes to the Gentiles and preaches the gospel. The point of that vision was: listen, 
I know that you have all along considered those people unclean. I know that all along that you've considered, if you touch those people, um, that, that, that you would be rendered unclean. Um, but this is what God says in Acts 10, 15. Uh, what God has made clean, don't you dare call common. It wasn't about food. It was about a people. And the idea that people that I had once considered to even touch me would render me unclean were now to join me um, in praising Yahweh along, uh, alongside me? Unheard of. That, that was unthinkable for a Jewish audience. And then you come to verse 11. It's another psalm. And it's interesting, it's the, it's the shortest of all the Psalms. It's Psalm 117. I want to read you, it's only two verses. But I want to read you what is being attributed. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. That is the Psalm that is quoted here by Paul. And Paul is pointing out that Gentiles, all nations, all people, are worshiping God for his steadfast love and his faithfulness. What? A Gentile doing that? Unthinkable. And then the coup de gras. The coup de gras is the, is the last one in verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. <laughs> now, you know who that is. I mean, that's one of the... the, the uh, the names or the, uh, the references to the, the Jesus, the root of Jesse. You know the root of Jesse? You know Jesse was the father of David? And that the, that the Messiah would ultimately be a, um, a descendant of David's? The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles. So, and and you, notice, you notice what's consistent in all four of those texts. Gentiles, 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 Gentiles. Mentioned five times in those four verses. The Gentiles. And what, you're, what, what Paul is saying in, in, um, in verse 12 is that Israel's Messiah, this root of Jesse, um, that will come and will rule the Messiah, the long-expected, long-awaited Jewish Messiah, is going to be the Messiah of the Gentiles as well. That he's not just your Messiah, Gentiles. Excuse me, Jews. He's the Gentiles' Messiah too. Um, and that because he is the one who reigns over both Jews and Gentiles, he brings both of them united into one community. Jews and Gentiles, loving one another as brothers, Worshipping side by side. Celebrating the reign and the rule of the, their Messiah over them. Um, not despising one another. Not judging one another. Not picking on one another. No. Those Gentiles that you've so despised, Israel, are going to be saved by the same way you are. And they're going to have the same Messiah that you have. 
Israel's Messiah is the Gentiles' Messiah. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the point of those verses right there. <laughs> that kind of excites me. When, when, you, when I'm reading something that has confused me and I think, oh, there is a great piece of genius here. And the genius is that Paul is using the Old Testament to establish a New Testament principle. And that New Testament principle is no matter what your background, no matter what kind of uh, baggage you bring, no, uh, no matter what kind of past you've got, if you belong to this Savior, you and I are brothers. You know, the, the whole section, guys, and actually it's, it's, it's finalized in verse 13, but I wanted to hold on to verse 13 by itself because it's a piece of doxology. But this whole section is finalized in verse 13, and the point of it is, all of you people who share the same Savior are people who really, not just... It would be nice if y'all got along. But to not get along is a great wickedness. For, for there to be some kind of artificial division, color, um, views of Christian liberty, for those kinds of things to to create, oh, or um, economic uh, differences. For those kinds of things to divide us, ladies and gentlemen, is not a small thing. It's a big thing. You know, I think that's why, I think, and I think you know this passage, it's in uh, Proverbs chapter 6, in Proverbs chapter, chapter 6, it says, um, Six things the Lord hates, yea, a seventh. And so he lists you know, seven things that the Lord hates. And you remember what the last one is, don't you? He who sows discord among brothers. Um, you know, you've heard Campus Crusade's great. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, if you are one that tends to sow discord among brothers, here's, this is for you. God hates you. Six things the Lord hates, yea, a seventh. He who sows discord among brothers. Guys, in the light of having a common Savior, it ought to enable us to get beyond any of our differences. I'm not talking about sinning against each other. When we sin against each other, ladies and gentlemen, you know, we need to, we need to deal with that differently. And, and by the way, let, let me say this real quick. Gang, living in, in, a, in a family Living in a Christian community is all about relationship repair. That's what we do. So if I sin against you, 
then for heaven's sakes, then we, we, need to, we need to make that right. And there are two things that will enable us to repair relationships. <laughs> Repentance and forgiveness. When those two things aren't present, then, then relationships remain broken, just like they do in marriages. It's the same for a marriage, ladies and gentlemen. I'm telling you, anybody in this room who's been married longer than about six weeks knows that there's a whole lot of relationship repair that goes on in the course of a marriage, and it requires repentance and forgiveness. Now, that's, that's one subset of difficulties among Christians. That's not what this is about. This is about making artificial differences causes for division among us. I'm just telling you. That ain't a small thing. That's a big thing. And one of the reasons that I know it's big is because the Apostle Paul on numerous occasions has to present this case and he has to argue this case that Jews and Gentiles are to live in harmony under the same rulership of the same Savior. It seems to me that if Jews and Gentiles can pull that off, so can you and I, you and me. Let's make sure we do. We'll quit with that. Our Father, um, forgive us if we have been guilty of sowing seeds of discord. It seems to me, O oh God, in your great kindness towards this church, you have, um, you have seen fit to protect us from th that kind of person and that kind of Division that is, that just sucks the life out of any congregation. So we bless you and thank you, Father, for guarding us from those, those people of discord, those seeds of discord. And would you enable us, Father, to live in great harmony, one with the other, not just for next week's congregational meeting. But from then on, from there on, would you, would, you con would you allow us to continue the past 22 years of sweetness and oneness around here and where, where we have um, assaulted that, would you convict us of the enormity of our crime? Lord, uh, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful um, to be reminded of these important matters as we seek to live together as brother and sister in Christ. And we pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.